0: Welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, EFG's weekly podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, the Deputy CIO and Global Head of Research. And this week, I'm very lucky to be joined by Helen Thomas, who is the founder and CEO of Blonde Money. Now, Helen's had a really long and successful career in the world of finance, including a spell working uh, for George Osborne at the Treasury when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. So I'd just like to start by asking Helen, what was it like to work for George Osborne?
1: Well, uh, thank you very much, first of all, Daniel, for coming onto your podcast. Uh, yeah, working with George was actually great fun. I mean, uh, he is a great boss. Uh, he I remember distinctly the very first day that I came into his office. He was in his jogging gear. He had his feet up on the desk. It was all very relaxed. He had the team around him. And he immediately came to me and said, so, you know, what do you think our policy should be? And I thought, blimey, that's quite impressive on day one to be asking me as the most mm-hmm. junior person and the newest person in the team. Um, and I think that's good because it sh- does show that, you know, he wanted to listen to fresh new ideas. Um, I mean, I think many of your listeners will have worked in uh, organisations that are massive where um, rarely do you ever get asked for your personal opinion. So uh, that that was that was quite a good start, I must say.
0: Well, obviously, you had great foresight about your uh, your talents there, Helen. Uh, so, I mean, perhaps that's a convenient way to think about the current situation in the UK, obviously faced with a number of challenges, faced with the challenge of Brexit, faced with the challenge of dealing with the coronavirus, and faced with the uh, associated challenges of dealing fiscally with that. Uh, what do you think of the current Chancellor's approach to dealing with the, uh, the current crisis and the, the challenges that he faces?
1: Well, I think, you know... Uh... Rishi Sunak has done something like six different budgets in the last year Um, you know he certainly had to stand up many many times and do policies that nobody could have thought possible you know a year ago so um, I think uh, we should be I think that I think I am I would give him good marks for getting us through to this point for being creative for coming up with ideas on the fly you know having to work under a lot of pressure uh, but I think the problem now is what is the long term plan for the economy um, not just post pandemic but obviously post brexit uh, you know where does where does this government see the uk economy going and I think it's this transition from fighting the fire of the last year into that longer term view, which which is the biggest challenge uh, for uh, Rishi Sunak, well, indeed for any Chancellor.
0: And do you think that uh, latest problems regarding things like Northern Ireland, and regarding uh, the export of vaccines, do you think those represent simply teething problems in this new relationship between the UK and the EU? Or do you think this is a sign of things to come?
1: Well, I think everybody knew, even those who were the most ardent Brexiteers, that the moment of exit would be difficult. Um, uh, I think there is a lot of teething problems going on. Uh, and I think, really, the thing about this new world that we're in with this trade and cooperation agreement that was signed just you know before Christmas last year, actually, it was not an end point. It was just a beginning i mean there's 1246 pages i think but but what's more remarkable is what they haven't covered you know what's left out what um what are bits where they've ended up doing creating a working group to make a decision later postponing decisions grace periods i mean the whole thing actually is just a starting off point it's almost like the rules of the game for the next level of negotiation so i think uh, what i would take away from all of that is that People may may not want to hear this, but we're probably a decade away from a settled relationship between the UK and Europe, and it's not going to be clear for a while if we're going to remain aligned or very divergent You know, when we actually get to that end point.
0: Yes, I, I think that's, uh, that's probably very true. It's going to take a while before we iron out a lot of the wrinkles and some of those periods likely to be more fraught with difficulties than others. Now you mentioned uh, bits and pieces that have been left out, and something that uh, is um, currently being negotiated and that is a massive area that's been left out is of course our own industry financial services What's your prognosis for the uh, the resolution of um, uh, the agreement between the u s and the EU with regard to financial services?
1: The one good thing about financial services as we all know is is it is a pragmatic industry. It isn't really ideological in any way. So from that perspective, I think that the negotiations will come up with something and it will it will work out whatever it is, um, because I think both sides do want to be pragmatists about it. Having said that, um, there's long been a dispute about the strength of London and the city from those sitting in uh, Frankfurt or Paris uh, about whether they can, you know, gain some competitive edge over London, which has, you know, been not just a a European hub, but obviously an international hub. Um, So there will clearly be frictions. Um, I think um, Governor Andrew Bailey of the Bank of England has been tougher than I expected uh, in his comments in the last couple of months, where he's been really quite keen to say that the UK will diverge, that we are separate, that we can do our own thing, um, which inevitably will, will, you know, raise the hackles of of the EU side of things. But to be honest, uh, again, it's the start of a longer negotiation. And uh, I think when it comes to where financial services will end up, and money money moves and it will move overnight even if there is no agreement or it takes a long time to come to an agreement so I think it, if we look at it from a global perspective, having the u k and eu thrashing this out really at the end of the day it's probably to the benefit of the u s uh, or, or Asian hubs you know whilst this regional spat continues
0: Now you know one lens through which you can view this perhaps is to note that the government has expressed a view to try to rebalance regionally and by de-emphasising the financial sector that in turn de-emphasises London and so might turn greater attention and perhaps divert activity towards some of the regions. What do you think about that view?
1: Well, I think that this government does have a different approach to business. Famously, of course, Boris used a very colourful expression about uh, a business could basically... Uh, go its own way, if I put it politely, in the, in the Brexit negotiations. So we've been rather tainted by that. But look, you know, the, uh, for a start, the uh, UK government knows the importance of the tax take from that industry, uh, it wouldn't want to totally kill the golden goose, but uh, there is no doubt that the success of this government came from seats in the north of England that um you know, are much focused on totally different industries. And the government does want to, as it keeps saying, level up, um, really try and remove some of that imbalance that's been going on for decades where all the money and people and resources have all collected in the southeast and to be honest, I think it's sensible to try and rebalance that. It's kind of happened naturally. It's something that the electorate seems to want. And, of course, post-pandemic, there's a really interesting question about um, if people can work from anywhere, uh, would they rather have a bit more space in a bigger house and not be cramped right into the southeast of the country? So there's a that rebalancing, I think, is happening naturally anyway.
0: Do you have a sense as to what policies the Chancellor might employ to try to encourage this rebalancing.
1: Well, they're obviously doing some, uh, they're obviously making some changes with things like moving staff, you know, up to different parts of the country, particularly up north. I think in terms of the tax policies and things like that, um, we haven't sort of, we haven't seen this yet, but there's been an awful lot of discussion about, Kind of quasi wealth taxes, or at least reforms on capital gains tax, uh, all the kinds of things that uh, all the kinds of things that you might approach to be more redistributive in income, uh, which of course is fascinating coming from a, a, a conservative, right wing, allegedly right wing government. Um, so. I do think that this Conservative government is going in a different direction, you know, than the ones I worked for and that we've had in the past. Um, But again, we're in a totally different world because debt levels are massive now and there is a much bigger deficit and um, taxes will be rising
0: one way or the other. And so just on that, obviously, the Chancellor announced uh some proposed tax increases although uh, the bulk of uh, those tax rises or the explicit ones anyway will not come through for another couple of years do you think he's just kicking the can down the road and hoping that he won't ever have to implement them or do you think he's serious about uh, implementing tax acts will obviously you know a couple of years time it will be just ahead of the next election so the timing would be quite damaging potentially.
1: So there's a few different things going on there. When it comes to the election, um, raising corporation tax seems to poll very well. So um, when it comes to actually winning votes, most people in Britain probably don't care too much if business has to pay a bit more tax, even though we might all say, well, in the end, that might lead to higher unemployment if, if business can't um, make as much profit, for example. But generally speaking, corporation tax rises Um Apparently, poll pretty well, so um, I don't think the electoral imperative necessarily changes it. What could change it is if the economy takes a different path. If uh, we stagger along in fairly suboptimal growth, then um, the chancellor may not want to be uh, putting a hit onto business. If if it's if we've still got high unemployment, if the furlough schemes stopped, and then we you know, still have people out of work. So he might want to get rid of it for that reason. However, one thing I think is fascinating about Rishi Sunak is there has been a very consistent trend over the year that he's been in charge of the Treasury, where he has clearly been looking at tax rises and he is very worried about the debt sustainability. I mean, he gave an interview to the FT not long ago saying, you know, what what kept him awake at night was interest rate, rate increases and if you look at the obr the office of budget responsibility in britain you know they've done a lot of analysis of course that the biggest one of the biggest problems that the country now has is a huge vulnerability to higher interest rates because we have such a big pile of debt of course rates are very low and may very well stay low for a while but that that is a, a, a bigger and bigger risk so i'm i'm quite interested that the Chancellor's taken that angle. You don't have to take that view. You could take the view you're going to go for growth, get it at whatever the cost, then you can weather the storm of higher rates. But he seems particularly sensitive to the fact that uh, higher interest rates mean they're going to have less money for things like hospitals and nurses, which is, of course, an understandable approach to take. So I just think overall, very long answer to your question, Daniel, but um, overall, it seems this Chancellor is very committed to getting that debt into a sustainable situation.
0: Something that's been bounded about not just in the UK, but in other countries as well, is the prospect for a wealth tax. And Not very many countries have these at the moment. Do you think that's a, a realistic um, probability in the UK?
1: I think given my expectation for the G7 economies, which is that they will be subpar growth for some time obviously not everybody agrees with that but that's my my angle on this um that means that uh some really difficult choices have to be made because the, the as the pie doesn't get any bigger if the pie is sort of the same size or shrinking then your political decisions are much much tougher and you have to start dividing up the pie and you have to start making decisions that will upset some parts of society so um, in my expectation of of the economy um i i can imagine we would see something potentially like a wealth tax maybe even a one-off windfall tax uh, but equally we might see something like a universal basic income that's probably a long way away in the uk but in other countries you know that that's sort of starting to gain some ground
0: yeah it's a tricky one and uh, obviously there's you know in theory wealth taxes look good but in practice they're very hard to implement Uh, yes fraught fraught with challenges absolutely Um, and of course you know in
1: a a very global world money just moves around so um you as 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 i think everyone knows from you know famously amazon's tax bill uh, despite all the business they do in the uk it's very hard to actually extract any more tax from
0: them yeah uh, absolutely now thinking about um our leader boris johnson so he, um, or under his leadership, the Tory Party won its largest majority since the 1980s. He's implemented Brexit, which is what he said he'd do. He's, uh, you know, steered the country through the biggest crisis since the Second World War, in the form of the COVID crisis, which thankfully we now look to be towards the end of. Uh, will he lose appetite for the leadership? He, you know, that's always his ambition. Having got there, done it, and left what in some people's eyes could be viewed as a a strong legacy do you think he has much appetite to continue?
1: Boris loves power and Boris loves to be loved so uh, he would love to win another election uh, if he thinks he can do so and of course what he's done is he's a big gambler you know it looked terrible last year Uh, he was being criticised from all sides Uh, but you know, decided to kind of go double or quits on vaccinations, get them done, get them approved, get them out there. And and thus far as us talking now, you know, that, that scheme is working. And so, he's you know, he's done a gamble again and it seems to be paying off. He's, he, he, is, he is a classic politician in every sense of that word. You know, he knows how to gain power and get power and keep it. So um, you never count him out. Uh, however... He also, of course, as a student of history, knows that uh, you you go when the time is right. If you leave it slightly too long, you, know, you don't want to do the Mrs Thatcher angle. You want to do, you know, Tony Blair, of course, um, actually almost probably just about got it right, although obviously has the legacy of the Iraq war. But it was Gordon Brown that had to pick up a lot of the pieces. Um, so I think uh, I think Boris will eventually go. But as it stands, he's thinking he's in. Good spot to uh, win the next election and then hand on to his protege, whoever he decides that is.
0: Okay, well, time will tell. I suppose he also has a, a young child at home, so he's yes. he's not getting any younger. So maybe the whole burden will prove too much. For him. Well, you're you're <laughs> right. I mean, he
1: judges politics very well. If he does judge that his star is on the decline, he'll he'll he would he would he would manoeuvre around that if if that were the case. But um, as it stands, yeah, he's he. I think he wants to fight the next election.
0: Perhaps we could just turn attention to the US. We obviously have a new administration in the US and uh, in some respects a much more traditional one than um, the previous administration. How do you think uh, that administration will seek to interact with the UK, particularly in this new world of Brexit?
1: I think that the Biden administration is going to be deeply occupied with domestic issues, uh, inevitably, because of course they have a, a, a huge economic crisis they're still working their way out of. You know, millions are still unemployed, um, and of course, with the, the split Senate, it's it's harder to uh, get the the program through. So I think that the U.S. Joe Biden, we primarily really focused on things domestically. Having said that, um, I think that the uh, relationship with the UK, you know, the special relationship still exists. I think they do still want to get on with the Boris Johnson government. Um, You can see that from the fact that um, some Tariffs were suspended recently on, uh, for example, Scott Scotch whiskey um, over the Boeing Airbus disputes. So it's only a you know small thing from a US perspective, but the fact they did do that does show that they are happy to engage with the UK on trade issues. Um, and uh, and I think that inevitably, as ever, the US will find a greater partnership in the UK's approach than in the EU. So when it comes to those to the trade angle, there's kind of a natural um, approach to trade and business that, that melds much better between the UK and the US than the EU and the US.
0: Now, talking about trade, the US president, presidential authority to sign a trade deal, uh, I think it um, expires um, in a few months' time. Uh, does that give enough time for the US and the UK to agree a trade deal?
1: Well, you're absolutely right on that. There is a very narrow window and I don't think it will get done for, for exactly the point that, you know, the Biden administration has far more important things up its list. Um, in, there will in the end come some sort of free trade agreement between uh, the UK and the US. It, it would have been quicker if Trump had remained in position. Um, so, you know, yes, that's a, a negative potentially for the UK. But I I think they will get there in the end. It's just going to take it's just going to take some time.
0: Well, well, let's hope so. What about I mean, thinking about US domestic politics, the Senate famously is split 50 50, which uh, technically means that it's a Democrat majority because the vice president carries the casting vote. How much of a challenge in practice do you think that will be to the Biden administration?
1: I think it will be very challenging. And that's because in a 50-50 Senate, although, as you say, there is the plus one of the vice president, it means any one senator can destabilise the whole process. And of course, um, the party matters less in American politics than it does in, in the UK. So it doesn't matter if someone is technically a Democrat, in in the Senate, that doesn't mean they will vote the same way as as Joe Biden. And in fact, you look at Bernie Sanders, who famously is a, um, one of the more left wing senators. You know, he's he's an independent who sits with the Democrats in the Senate. You know, so these senators are very independently minded. They're on a different electoral schedule. They've got different electoral pressures, and um, they will vote differently. So so trying first of all to keep. Your natural majority, or at least your natural grouping together, is one thing, then you have to make sure you don't lose anybody. And now, with Bernie Sanders being quite far to the left and then having some more moderate centrist Democrats, that's even tougher. Because if you go too far to the middle, yes, you might pick up some centrist, but you then lose the Sanders of this world. You go too far left, with the, you know, there's a huge progressive element of the democratic party who um are frustrated by joe biden and always were you know the um famous new york congresswoman alexandria ocasio-cortez you know has been very critical of biden and kamala harris um even though they're technically the same party but if you go that far left you lose the center so actually consensus building even within the democrats is going to be tough enough let alone that you might then need a republican or two i should say actually um at Blonde Money, we are now ranking every single senator um, on their ideology and the safety of their seat and various other criteria to try and ensure we can see how votes are going to go when they eventually turn up. But it's um, it's very difficult because actually a lot of, you know, there's this filibuster rule. I'm sure we don't want to go into that on this podcast, but it's difficult in America to get policy done. It was created that way by the founding fathers to make sure... There was no tyranny of the majority. Um, so uh, you do need a really coherent mandate and a group to get things done. Um, and frankly, Joe Biden doesn't have it. So um, he was able to get the latest fiscal package through. Um, but that was because they used a particular, uh, particular process called the Budget Reconciliation Act, which allowed for it to be done on a, a pure majority basis. But most rules in the Senate uh, require more than that and it's going to be really difficult for him
0: yeah I think you make a very good point there about the, the challenges in balancing state versus national politics and how both senators and congressmen have to you know keep uh, one eye over their shoulder looking at local opinion polls to make sure they get re-elected and and of course you know already we're starting to see articles talking about the the midterm elections which are only two years away so pretty much straight out of the national elections and into the midterms. Um, How do you think Joe Biden's infrastructure, uh, uh, proposed infrastructure bill will be greeted in both houses um, in the context of of the impending midterms? Do you think it will be a positive thing or do you think um, uh, he'll find some pushback?
1: We were just having a team meeting about this yesterday, actually. So the question really is, um, voting for that bill, do you get more of a boost from your electorate if you manage to put into that bill, we're going to build a new highway in North Dakota? You know, can you make, can you get something in it that's local that you can put your name on? Does that make you vote for it because you manage to get something in your state that you can sell to the voter, or? dual voters just look at the big picture and say, what the hell are we spending all this money for and why is it all going on um, you know these utilities or, or or oil or you know God knows what um, does as, as a Republican, you know you have to think really carefully about, This is an administration that has been uh, has has got like a cultural identity to it. So even if you could get something nice for your voters, do they think that you are supporting um, a a lefty, liberal, woke administration who want to defund the police or whatever? I mean, that's a very crass caricature that's not even true. But uh, the American politics is so polarized now Um, that it's really difficult to get things done. So I think that infrastructure bill, they'll they'll come up with something in the end. They will build a consensus, but it will take a very long time. And uh, I'm sure it will be big in number terms. But in terms of the actual money getting out into the economy, I think it's going to take a long time.
0: Yes, I I guess uh, the context of that also muddied by the fact that the Democrat majority in the uh, in congress was very much reduced unexpectedly at the last election so this is
1: yeah i mean that's the thing you have to remember for joe biden is actually he's got he hasn't he has not really got a big mandate it's not really clear exactly what america voted for as you say they you know lost seats house of representatives didn't do so well at senate level but biden managed to get in but what does he even stand for and all the while, you know, over 70 million people voted for Donald Trump. So it's a, it's a very divided society. And you know, one big theme we've been talking about um, is policymaking when your electorate's very fragmented is really difficult. You know, Classically, politicians want to please all the people all the time. At the moment, they run the risk of pleasing none of the people all of the time. And that's quite
0: tricky. Yeah, absolutely. You think uh, Trump will... Make a comeback in 2024.
1: One way or the other, he's not going away. Of course, uh, he'll either stand himself or he will clearly anoint somebody else. Um, I, I, I would imagine he wants to anoint somebody else with a Trump name. You know, whether it will be Dodgy or Ivanka or even um, the wife of Donald Jr. I forgot her name, but I'm sure he will want that. Um, it's unclear at the moment, though. Uh, I think it's 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 unclear who who a non-Trump challenger would be. You know, the Republican Party's got a lot of work to do. As you said, they're on a constant electoral cycle. I mean, that you know, as soon as one election finishes, that's it. They're off into the next one. You have to build up the momentum. So um, unless the Republicans can find somebody literally in the next six months or so, it really is going to be up to Trump, who the Republican candidate is.
0: Now, one of the things that Trump started that was quite controversial and um, out there at the time, but that is now much more mainstream, uh, relates to the US trade relationship with the rest of the world. And in particular, I'm thinking here of the US relationship with China. And it's interesting to note that, of course, the Biden administration has um, actively, uh, if not endorsed that policy, they've actively chosen not to reverse it. How do you think the US trade relationship with China will develop over uh, coming months and years?
1: Yeah, I think it's very interesting, as you say, that uh, there remains antagonism between the US and China. Um, I think that is only going to become more entrenched. Um, I think that the US are on a slightly more protectionist path than have been for a while. And of course, economic downturns tend to make uh, administration's is a bit more protectionist. When it comes to China, though, they are also aware they cannot go too far, at least on the international stage. You know, they are, they do want to be part of the international system, but just not playing necessarily by the international rules. So um, they certainly don't want to make a long-term enemy out of America. It, it's one of those, um, it's almost like a sibling relationship. You know, there's a real love-hate between the U.S. and China. They need each other, but they do push one another.
0: Yeah, you know, so it'd be very interesting to see how that develops. And uh, yeah, our house view for what it's worth is, you know we can see the world developing into these three big trading blocks that interact, but become much more self-contained. And obviously within Asia, that's likely to be dominated by China. Yeah. Now something, you know, thinking back to the UK's relationship with the U.S. and Asia, Yeah, the UK has recently announced that it's gonna seek to broaden trade links with Asia. Uh, I think uh, India, uh, Australia, Japan, and South Korea are at the core of that. Do you think they can successfully pursue these two different avenues, both of trying to develop trade relations with the US and trying to develop stronger relations with um, Asia, ex-China, at least, at the same time?
1: Well, I think it can be done. I think it's a sensible plan. Uh, as, of course, the UK is now out of the EU. Uh, part of the reason for that was supposed to be forging trade links with the rest of the world. But, of course, it's going to depend on the statecraft and the trade negotiations that that take place and how much of a plan the government has to do that. Um, and the problem for everybody, actually, is that with the pandemic still Ongoing, And of course, it will be a long time before the world is vaccinated, even if uh, the US, UK and Europe do manage to get everybody vaccinated this year. Um, that is going again to occupy an awful lot of time and energy from people. One of the themes I've been thinking about since last year, which I think will persist, is is borders are back. You know, the, the nation state is uh is, is ever more dominant. You know, even in a world where we know we're very globally dependent, uh, people are looking after their own nation first. And as I said, it you know, the political side of that is, of course, leaders do that because they only care about their national electorate. Um, so as long as they can favour their own country, and as long as their voters are happy, um, then they're happy. So it means that, you know the, the world we've been used to in the past where borders were basically disappearing they've been coming back slowly but surely as you know globalization's gone into retreat but also now you know because of the pandemic as well that's even more reason to worry about your borders. So um, I think you will see uh, Britain try to uh, make a broader global relationship with Asia and the US and reduce dependency on the EU But how successful it will be would depend on the strategy of the UK, but also how much time the other nations are willing to give to it when they've still got
0: pandemic issues at their door. Yeah, that's a very good point. Lots of distractions at the moment, for sure. Now, you know, much as the UK might like to develop uh, bigger trading relationships with the US and with Asia, the reality is that it is just much easier practically to trade with, those countries that are physically closest to you, it's clearly much easier to move goods around and to move people around if uh, the distances they have to travel are much less. So, uh, you know, Europe is um, undergoing its own challenges at the moment. I think what you just said about the nation state is very interesting in the context of an EU that's trying to develop into more of a federation, at least according to the wishes of some people. So how do you see European politics developing over the next few years?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. This is a big challenge now for Europe. I believe it will eventually rise to it and emerge much stronger. But I think the next few years are going to be very, very difficult. For a start, you already had uh, slower economic growth because of demographics that was... uh, that, that keeps European growth a bit lower than might otherwise be the case. Famously now, negative interest rates for a very long time, they were supposed to just be temporary and now they've still got them and they still don't have inflation. Um, so there's all these structural uh, structural sclerotic uh, issues for Europe. But now um, you've had the pandemic thrown on top of that raising the question of, yeah, who is the nation state? I mean, I think it was a great breakthrough that they came up with the Next Generation Recovery Fund last year, the big fiscal stimulus for the first time to be uh, funded by, you know, EU level debt. Um, But of course, actually, it's not quite a year since that was announced. But uh, I don't really think very much of it has been actually deployed and dispersed yet because, Inevitably, as you're dealing with many different member states, they all have different rules and ways of thinking how this should be, um, first of all, dispersed and how it should be spent in that nation state. So you've, you've got that institutional friction between um, the bloc and the fact that its electorate is still very you know, nation driven. So to that end, I think the most important thing this year, in fact, is that Angela Merkel is gone from Germany She's not standing again, and there will be a new Chancellor. And of course Germany is one of the most important EU economies. Without a strong leader there, um, you have a lack of direction. And then six months later you get the French presidential election. you know another large economy. Um, Macron struggling at the moment, even if he gets reelected, may struggle even more. then you've got the threat of uh, Le Pen. and then Italy, um, you know, Yes, they have Mario Draghi now, which is, which is, I think, a good sign, but that will only be temporary. You know, he, he's not going to be around forever. So you've got the big European economies going through a once-in-a-lifetime shock at a moment when their economies were already struggling and all this institutional friction. I think the next 12 to 18 months, it's actually Europe that has some of the biggest challenges
0: ahead. Yeah, there's certainly uh, very good points you highlight, and Europe is certainly going through a transformational stage at the moment. Uh, perhaps uh, not just because of COVID, but in addition to COVID. Yeah, it's really very interesting. I didn't even,
1: that. I didn't even say Brexit, did I?
0: <laughs> <laughs> On top of everything else. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what can the ECB do in that context? It's already buying bonds. It's accelerated its uh, scale of its asset purchase rate. Does it just do more? Does it increase the envelope of uh, its asset purchase program. What else can it do?
1: I think the ECB are trying very hard to do as much as they can. I've been impressed with how much they've come out with it's, you know, huge bond buying programs, and of course, as you say, the latest one, the PEP. Um, they changed the rules about how much of each country's debt they could buy. You know, they're trying to they're trying to do as much as possible, but they are they are hamstrung by the same problem, which is they are a supranational authority, but they're still comprised of member states central banks, you know, the Bundesbank, the Banque de France. The problem that Christine Lagarde always has is how does she create a consensus? And you could already see that where they came up with this big number for the asset purchase programme. And then um, Isabel Schnabel, who's become increasingly important as the German member uh, said, oh, you should consider it a ceiling, not a target. Because that was trying to calm down the hawks who felt god this is a hell of a lot of money we're throwing at the problem you know we don't have to spend all of this we don't have to buy all these bonds but then recently you've had panetta the italian member saying well really we should be really worried about tightening of financing conditions which actually means we should target the yield itself kind of yield curve control much more dovish interpretation so there's there's you know the ecb is being pulled in all these different directions um Christine Lagarde is making a good fist of trying to forge a consensus, but it inevitably means it's a lot slower for the ECB to react than, say, the Bank of England. Um, And that, again, unfortunately, will be a bit of a drain on uh, potential European growth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Consensus is good, but it takes time to build up. And uh, that is a policy challenge, particularly when you need to move quickly. So it'll be very interesting to see how how that works out. Do you think... um, that we're likely to see another uh, sovereign debt crisis in Europe anytime soon. Obviously, vast amounts of debt issued over the past 12 months.
1: Well, it's, I think Italy is really interesting because if you think in the last six months, the government collapsed. Uh, it wasn't clear that any new government could be formed. It looked like we might have to go to snap elections, at which point, you know, the right wing league party has been sitting in the sidelines all this time they're ahead in the polls look like you know they would do well it would be a change of government if there was an election and then all of a sudden Mario Draghi swoops in and manages to get everybody on board and we have a technocratic government. I mean that is an incredible amount of political risk. The Italian economy could have gone in 10 different directions depending on how it panned out but the spread on Italian BTPs over Buns didn't really move that much. I mean it It did move, but nothing like what we have seen, you know, uh, in the sovereign debt crisis or indeed the years afterward. So I think that bond markets are just entirely becalmed and distorted because of all the QE. There's just so much money sloshing around. And every pension fund in the world needs to have some uh, some government bonds in there. Every bank needs to have some government bonds in there. Inevitably, it means that the uh, that actually this price of debt will, I think, continue to to remain relatively relatively calm. In fact, I think bond markets are going to be famous last words. Are going to be fairly boring.
0: Well, I sincerely hope you're right. There's nothing wrong with boring. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> you need that in markets.
1: Yeah, and you need it. You need it in a well diversified portfolio, of course, as we would yeah, always ab-
0: say. Absolutely, That's very sage advice, <laughs> Helen. Thank you ever so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating to hear your views. I think we're, we're um, roughly out of time. But before we go, I'd just like to ask you one final question, which is what advice would you give to someone who's looking to start out in financial services today?
1: I would tell them to get a qualification, and you know which one I'm going to mention. It's, it's one that you and I have in common, Daniel, which is the CFA, Chartered Financial Analysts. And I, I say that... Because I absolutely loved studying it, not the exams, obviously, but I did love learning about all the different parts of finance. Because actually, the most important thing about finance is although you're going to end up being quite specialised, it will only do you favours to know about the entire infrastructure and ecosystem You know, and that and that I yeah I came from a world of foreign exchange and macro. There I am learning about balance sheets and how you value a bond and a stock. And actually, you need to know all of that. You need to know all of that to know how your bit of finance works. So I would just say, learning as much as you can about the whole of the financial system um, is definitely the way to go.
0: Well, thank you. I think that's very good advice. I hope, Helen, you've enjoyed being on. We've certainly very much enjoyed having you as a guest this week. I hope to our listeners that you have enjoyed Helen's contribution. I'm sure you have. We uh, look forward to welcoming you to future Beyond the Benchmark podcasts. And uh, I hope you have a very good week. Thank you very much.